Welcome everyone. This is Megan Cummings-Kruger and today the Mentium Matters podcast is going to focus on the importance of being intentional in how and what we communicate, which really is the foundation of creating a culture of trust. My guest is Peter Vorbrick, a Mentium mentor who spent 25 years working in the financial industry. Most of that time working in a private investment industry for Calvar Investors, a 10 billion investment firm and Cargill subsidiary. He served as CFO, led teams of investment professionals around the globe, and spent five years living in Japan during this time. Since retiring in 2016, Pete currently serves as a director and mentor to a variety of early stage entrepreneurial companies and also serves on the boards of several nonprofit organizations. Pete received his BA from Dartmouth College, a JD from University of Michigan Law School, and an MBA from the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Business. He and his wife live in lovely Minneapolis and are the proud parents of three children and two dogs. Uh, Pete joined the Mentium Mentor Community in 2017. He's already has four partnerships under his belt, and he's currently mentoring two new mentees right now. He also was a recent voice of experience for Mentium's business education webinar, where we discussed flexing our communication styles. Welcome, Pete. Thank you. It's good to be here. Lovely to have you. You know, I have always agreed with the George Bernard Shaw quote that says, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And you have spoken about how important it is to be intentional in how you communicate with others to ensure that they hear you as you intend. And you made an observation during our recent webinar discussion that I think often can be overlooked that communication styles need to adjust to the different stages of leadership. So can you tell us a little more about what you mean by that? I, yeah, I think early communication styles are just what feels natural to people, the way they've engaged with their friends and the way they've engaged with their family and their schoolmates and you know, people like that, that they're in proximity to on a daily basis. And I think in, in a corporate setting or any kind of a professional setting, your communication needs to be tailored to who you're talking to. So if you work in an office setting with a group of people that sit near you all day, every day, that casual conversational style can be perfect for that. That's how you get to know each other. You see how people work. You understand their style, both through what they say and also through how they behave. But as your career progresses, or if you work with teams of people that are in different locations, or, or, or for example, now during COVID, if you have teammates who are new to your organization and always remote, you have to find a way to develop that rapport with them and to communicate with them in a way that's sort of less organic. Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine, I remember you telling me something about the value that is placed on uh, your teams, your reports, uh, the higher you go up and how your, the awareness you need to have about how much weight is placed on that from the perspective of the team member, the employee. Yeah. The, the, my most explicit experience in that area was when I lived in Japan and I led a team of people who were um, almost all Japanese. And as the leader of the team, if I was trying to solicit people's opinions about what would be the best approach or what are their good ideas, and, and, and in an international setting, it's critical that you do that because the framework that I use to think about things is based on the culture that I'm familiar with. And so 
if I wanna get that input, but the first thing I do is offer up what I think. Well, to many people in many cultures, now the boss has just told us what the right answer is. And so our response is to agree. Instead of, you know, when you've got maybe a different power dynamic, you need to elicit people's thoughts in a um, non-judgmental, non-predetermined kind of a way so that you get the benefit of their thinking. And then you have a burden of making sure that once you've decided what you're gonna do, that you go back and you talk to the people whose suggestions maybe you didn't adopt and explain to them why, so that the next time they don't think, well, I'm not gonna say anything this time because I had the wrong answer last time. Absolutely, that intentional follow-up is an important part. Well, you just referenced something that I, I also wanted to refer to, uh, and that is over the course of your career, you have gained a great deal of experience communicating, not just across the C-suite table, but across the globe. Um, in particular, of course, when you spent those five years in Tokyo. So um, can you share a little more about uh, what you took away communicating across cultures? I felt like a lot of the time, so while we're trying to adapt a business process and a business idea to a different marketplace, we're also bridging cultures and languages. And I felt a lot of the time that I was kind of an English to English translator. So somebody would say something in English and then I would process what that meant and then try to come up with a way to communicate that back to the headquarters, to the home office, to the people who were gonna be the ultimate decision makers. But that communication style within a foreign culture is a challenge because people's vocabulary might be different. I would encourage people to stay away from euphemisms or sports metaphors or slang or anything like that. In fact, one thing that happened, I was with a group of people from all over Asia, a variety of different countries, and I asked them if they had difficulty understanding each other given how different the accents were. And the consensus of the group was that they had more difficulty understanding me because my vocabulary and my manner of speaking was much more colloquial rather than mm -hmm. as precise as a, English as a second language learner would speak the language. Um, another cautionary note I would say is if you communicate in writing by email, for example, you should be aware of how time consuming it is for your audience to read um, extensive text in a foreign language. So if you, if you send a reply all with a 4,000 word response to somebody's question, everybody that you reply to is gonna to try to understand the whole thing, which means they'll have their dictionaries out and they'll be working hard. So being precise and being as brief as you can um, and keeping it to plain English is uh, you know, Im important approach. When I think that's such an important view to have, because I, I, it strikes me that it is extremely common. I feel like um, we Americans are just peppered with uh, anecdotes and euphemisms and uh, sports analogies uh, all the time. And I remember most distinctly when my girls were younger, when kids are encountering things like that, play the hand you were dealt or, you know, and, and I said something about uh, crying uncle and they had no idea what that meant. And so it makes a lot of sense to me to have to be aware. What I loved was that you asked everyone, maybe not the, you know, what they were having trouble hearing uh, and communicating. It might not have been the answer you expected, but I imagine while you were in Tokyo in particular, I imagine when you'd ask these questions, oftentimes I'm guessing you were a little surprised perhaps by what you heard back. Yeah, all the time and in ways that you just can't anticipate. But 
to link back to the quote that you started with, the George Bernard Shaw quote, I think it's really important in those contexts to seek affirmation that people did understand. You know, so ask someone in the group to sort of play back for everybody what the conclusions were and what the takeaway was and what the thinking was. So that that's a way to confirm that, that, that you achieved understanding. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that intentional confirmation, definitely. And it's something we can easily lose track of. So the other aspect of the cultural difference that I think is interesting is understanding cultural traditions. You talked about how if you started out by saying, this is what I think, that was the boss telling everyone this is what's supposed to be. And I, you know, from what I know of Asian cultures, oftentimes that carries a great deal more weight than more of an egalitarian type of American culture. So I imagine there was a fair amount of understanding the weight behind what your words were. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to overgeneralize about cultures, but there are some commonalities and some differences. And I do, I do think well, even in American culture, if you're pretty direct with what you think, the people that you're communicating with will have to ask themselves, do, well, do I want to take him on on this point um, if I don't agree? Or is this a decision that's already been made and I need to fall in line? Or, or really, how open is this person to that? And I think that's a, there's a cultural awareness part of it, but just sort of a positional awareness about it, which is you become more senior in an organization what you say carries more weight. So in, in mentoring startup companies, for example, knowing what you don't know is important because if you tell somebody something and it's just your opinion based on your own sense, common sense, as opposed to deep experience, they're not gonna necessarily know that that isn't the voice of experience, but in fact, it's just somebody spouting off what they think, right? And so if you're not clear about that, you can really cause problems. And I, I think just, being aware as you become more senior in an organization that your audience of subordinates will put great weight on what you say and how you say it. And so you don't wanna be flippant or too casual about things. And if you're trying to solicit people's input, you need to be open to it and, and, and express yourself that way. Absolutely, create that space where they are sharing. You're gaining that diversity of thought, definitely. You shared a story with me that I really appreciated. Uh, you talked about um, a leader who shared with you the fact that he was aware that when he would travel from site to site, I think it was, that this was the one day they had exposure to him. And he had to be on at all times because there was a, I think they call it the shadow of the executive. Can you share that story now? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, one of the senior Cargill executives talked about, you know, it's an organization with 150 some thousand employees all over the world. And in some circumstances, when that executive goes to a facility in a, in a foreign location, that may be the only time in many of those people's careers that they will encounter that executive personally. Now, they may see video feeds on the, you know, the website or other things, but the actual personal encounter. And, um, you can't have a bad day in that context because you just, you, you disappoint people and you leave them wondering how come you got to be the boss if you're that, you know, <laughs> lethargic or whatever it is. And so I found that really difficult in international travel. And I wasn't at that level in the organization, but if you 
if you travel to a foreign country and you're meeting with a team of people or they're taking you to meet with important clients or important customers with expectation that you're going to impress or that they've spent all kinds of time preparing things to present to you, you know, that can't be the day that you're groggy from jet lag and can't stay awake in the meeting. And that's, that can be very difficult. You're in a warm conference room right after lunch and somebody's presenting, but you, you have to fight it because people have been preparing for you to come for this event. And so you need to be on. And for me, that was good advice that I really tried to take to heart. Absolutely. It strikes me that that is very much the difference between leading people versus managing people is really uh, making sure that you are delivering your best every time. So as any mentor who's listening to this podcast already knows, uh, one aspect all of our mentors share is being continuous learners. And Pete, you have been really intentional about how you've approached this with mentoring. You really have talked about how you appreciate how the learning goes in both directions with a mentee and mentor. And you've sought out opportunities to learn at the point of difference, which is something we talk a lot about with mentoring. So recently you shared uh, how powerful the learning has been for you this past year, because you've been mentoring two mentee and mentees who are both different gender from you and also a different ethnic background from you. So can you share some of what you've taken away from these experiences? It's, it's been fascinating and really enriching to learn from them particularly at this moment in American history where we're confronting so many of these issues within organizations and society at large. But to learn that the cultural differences that make it difficult for people from, with different backgrounds to feel comfortable in a workspace with a majority culture around them. On Monday mornings, people talk about what they did on the weekend and it might not be at all be the way they acted over the weekend. And, and then the question is, how do I participate in this conversation? If I share my story, do I alienate them because it's different than theirs? Do I play along and pretend I did something similar to them? How does that work? And so that sense of trying to be inclusive and then also with everything that, that is being discussed within organizations, there's this tendency to look to the people of color within an organization to be thought leaders and group leaders on those topics. And and that person may very well just want to come in and do their job. You know, they, to, to be the focal point of the discussion around this puts them at the center of it. And, and I think what I've learned is that, you know, like it or not, they live this every day of their lives. And in the workplace, they may not want to be a leader on that topic. And so understanding that and kind of feeling your way into that is really important. And I've, I've had the good fortune of having two mentees right now that are both really open to those discussions and open to educating me in ways that I need to be educated, frankly. And it's been, it's been really powerful for me this year. Yeah, and it really makes me think about how we talk about with mentoring, the power comes in seeing through new eyes, just seeing a different perspective. And I imagine that, yeah, it must be incredibly powerful to be able to have that generosity with the mentees, to be able to see things in a wholly different perspective. Yeah, I, an interesting, and we're talking about different communication styles for different times. I just a minute ago talked about how you would interact with your peer group if you don't come from the same culture that's dominant among that peer group, but how you interact with managers or people when you're looking for a job. You know, if you've had to overcome 
significant events in your life to get to the point where you are, as a manager or a leader of an organization, boy, that's the kind of person I want. You know, because there's no challenge that this person isn't up for, given how far they've come and where they started. And so there's a way in communicating up or in seeking out a job to communicate those differences and those difficulties. But then once you start working, now you're in a peer group and you may not want to differentiate yourself in that way with that group of people. So it's, it's kind of different purposes. And I know a lot of us struggle with how do I talk about myself? How do I describe my background in a way that presents me in the most impressive manner? You know, we, most of us are a little too modest to try to do that. You can, we can sell sneakers or software or whatever, but if we're asked to sell ourselves, we're pretty sheepish about it. And I think that's kind of being thoughtful and intentional about, okay, with this group of people, I'm going to de-emphasize difference. And with this group of people, I'm gonna emphasize difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, another aspect I wanted to talk to you about what you've learned through all of your um, experiences communicating includes also communicating values. You know, Mentium's research over the years, we have found uh, that one of the essential learning capabilities is alignment of vision, mission, and values. That certainly aligns with what you have shared about how much you value and work to create what you've called a culture of trust. But at one point, I know that uh, there was a point in your career where you found yourself in an organization which was not a trust-based culture. So could you share what you've learned from that experience? What came into relief for you with regard to what is necessary to be aligned with your organization's culture? Yeah, I think it, we can all have these philosophical conversations and maybe we did in dorm rooms, you know, when you think about part of darkness or Lord of the flies, are people fundamentally good or not? And I'm a believer that they are. People are fundamentally good and they wanna do the right thing. And they, if supported, can accomplish tremendous things. Um, and if not supported, people tighten up and they operate from a place of fear and they're not their best selves. And so the example that you mentioned was just a, a, an environment where the leadership behaved as if, if they weren't watching what people were doing, people would take advantage of, of every opportunity, not work hard enough, not do the right things, not emphasize the right aspects of the job, you know, take everything that isn't nailed down in effect, you know, and so the challenge with that is you end up with an organization that drives out people that want to work in a trust-based organization. And what you end up with is a group of people that are willing to kind of put up with it, either because there's aspects of the work that they like, or they're not aware of their other options, or they don't have other options. But, but it's, it, it's kind of like a, the long-term employee base is pretty beaten down. Um, and that's, that's, it's difficult to see people in that situation and it's difficult to lead them because efforts that I might make to give that person a little more authority and allow them to make mistakes and try to teach them from what, what those mistakes are and help them develop will just be shot down by a leadership culture that doesn't, doesn't appreciate that approach to things. And so if, if the person who I'm reporting to wants to know at four o'clock in the afternoon, well, where's, where's Megan right now? And I say, I don't know. You know, she may have had an appointment to go to. Well, you, you need to know that. Well, no, I don't because I trust her to get her job done and to communicate if she needs help and to be a professional and to manage herself, you know, 
in a, in a professional way. And so for me, it was just, it was difficult to recruit and try to hire people that I felt shared that sense of trust into an organization where I knew that wasn't going to be the predominant culture. And so it's, it, it, for me, it was, it was a, it was a frustrating stretch in my career and, you know, I, I had to seek a change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, over the arc of your career, and I would say you're probably semi-retired because you sound like you're pretty busy right now, but over your career, you know, you did reach the point of being a CFO. And so, you know, you've had a lot of leadership opportunities. You've had a lot of people, you've had opportunities to create a culture of trust. And I imagine that perspective is of great interest to our listeners. Can you share what you have found um, most effective when you have that ability to create that culture of trust? What do you think is important? I think to create that culture of trust, you need to be, show up as the same person, be authentically yourself and be a clear communicator. Everybody knows that bosses have expectations and you can meet those or not meet those. And so the clearer everybody is about what those are, the easier it is to kind of know where you are. And having conversations with somebody who isn't measuring up about, a, is, is this the wrong role for you? Do we need to try to find something that fits your interests and skills better? Is this the wrong organization for you? Let's, you'll be happier doing work that you, where you can, in a role where you can thrive than you know, operating in a role where you're not thriving. And then when you have people that have you know, drive and energy and lots of creative talents, giving them the room to develop and do that and feel like, boy, as a, as, a, as a leader in this organization, one of the most important parts of my job is to make myself expendable and almost redundant in some respects. So the sooner I can get somebody to do these things and take on all this responsibility, the sooner I can do something else that's of even more value to the organization as opposed to thinking like, boy, if this person gets appointed, to, promoted to supervisor, well, what am I gonna do? That, now I'm gonna lose my job. Well, not if your career and your um, skill set is evolving at the same pace that the others are. Yeah, yeah. Again, it circles back to that intentionality. So when thinking about your career and what you've taken and, and quite frankly now you're mentoring a number of not just mentee and mentees but as i said in your bio uh, a number of different organizations and individuals what habits do you feel contributed to your success what have you been sharing as a mentor that would be of interest i think you know habits and are maybe learnings that i've tried to put into practice and and in terms of communication style, one of the things that I encourage everybody to do is to think about what do you want to accomplish? You know, one of my children was interested in joining an organization that had kind of a, you know, really poor admissions process. And he was really, my son was really upset about that. And he's like, well, I think I want to call the leadership of this and tell them this. And I was like, well, you can do that. But the question I would ask is, what, what do you hope to accomplish? You know, do you think they'll change the process? Do you think they'll make a different decision about you? Do you think they'll take the people that bothered you and kick them out? You know, most likely you'll just express yourself and that'll be the end of it. And you may have damaged some relationships. And so in a communication sense, just thinking about when I'm going in to meet with a senior person in the organization, what do I want this person to take away from this engagement? 
you know, they asked a question, I need to come back with an answer or a proposal or further work that needs to be done. But there's, there's kind of two things I think you're trying to accomplish. One is answer the question on the table, do good work and show, but, and, but the other one is leave that meeting with that person having a positive impression of you as an employee. So in each one of those encounters, you're having a positive impact on them in terms of helping solve a problem or deal with an issue, but you're also putting them in a position where they think, okay, this is, this is a person that I can rely on to get to the bottom of something who, you know, who, who can uh, express themselves clearly and, and kind of knows what's important. Um, and I, I think that's even, I've conveyed to some of the people that I've mentored this idea of, of thinking of an elevator speech. So you're at a conference of your company and you get on the elevator and the CEO steps on the elevator too and looks at your name tag and says, Pete, what department do you work in? And what are you up to these days? And to have some answer that's like, I'm super excited that I'm working on this really important project and my manager was really great to let me get on this and my team is good. And so, the, you know, in, in a simple answer, you can describe what you're doing, that you're a team player, that you're thankful to your boss, that you like the people that you work with, and, you know, and that exec is gonna walk out. And if they remember that, they'll have a really positive impression of you. That's way more important than describing the project in detail. Definitely. Well, and it also occurs to me as you were saying all of that, that the other half of the communication need is when you are communicating this intentionally and thinking about what you want to accomplish, it's the end result is that person feels heard. They understand that they've been heard. And that to my mind must be a big part of their positive feeling at the end of that experience. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're interacting with people, like one, one thing I would say is as, as I became more senior in the organization, I wasn't as acutely aware of the fact that there were all these maybe levels of authority between me. And, and so somebody would come in to ask me to sign off on something. And this is maybe a junior level employee. And afterwards you realize they spent a lot of time preparing to walk into my office to ask me this question. And I didn't think that way. I thought, well, they just came in, they needed an answer and they came in and asked it, but that's not, no, they were intentional. They thought it through. How am I gonna ask this? How do I explain it? What if he has a bunch of follow-up questions? Do I need to have the answers to all those at my fingertips? But being, open and welcoming and not, you know, harsh or snappy with somebody like that is the way to just sort of encourage them to communicate more freely. And, and just being aware as you become more senior in an organization that that is happening, you know, and you are becoming more and more on a pedestal to sometimes people in the organization and you don't really even see it happen. Absolutely. And you don't see yourself that way. Um, but it is that's so important to see from that other person's eyes. That empathy piece uh, is so critical. All right. I can't let you leave without um, just asking that classic question for uh, really it's a catch all uh, before we let you go as far as any advice you have for up and coming leaders. You know that uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? I think it takes. Communicating over distance and communicating, I mean, distance within an organization and physical distance, both of those I think require a lot more intentionality and thought. And so 
if you have this casual approach of, you know, the way you can interact with a team of people that sit in cubicles near each other all day, every day, that style is not going to work as well when you're interacting with somebody who you're just meeting for the first time or who you only work with once in a while because they don't, they don't know you in the same way that those others do. They don't know that you show up on time every day and you're a hard worker and you do all these things. And so you need to be more assertive maybe or direct in how you communicate what you're working on and why you're working on it and, and you know sort of explaining it more fully and not just sort of assuming that because they've seen your work they organically understand the context of all of this and that works that works both ways if you're the leader and you're communicating to more junior people you need to explain yourself I mean if you tell people this is what we're going to do okay they'll get in line but if they understand the why you know, then the how becomes easier. Absolutely. And it does seem like so often the why is assumed, the uh, context is assumed um, that people understand. And I hear so often that is what's missing, is making sure you're intentional talking about the why. The, so, for example, we went through an exercise at Carval of migrating our um, accounting and book books of records off of a proprietary system to a third party, right? And initially, sort of the ripple through the organization was this was some big cost-saving outsourcing exercise. And what we ended up explaining to people was this third party, you know, this is their core function and this is what they're really, really, really good at. And they're always going to be better at that than we will be at trying to, you know, band-aid and uh, bailing wire create our own system out of this. And so in the end, it was a better outcome, but the communication had to be about not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it and why in the end, it will put us in a better place as an organization. And ultimately as a leader, it's, it's, it's fun when you walk around the corridor and you hear other people explaining things to people using your words, because then you know, <laughs> okay, I, I've, I've connected with that, that person and now I, they're trying to connect with the others. Absolutely. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Pete, thank you so much for sharing your perspective around the power of being intentional uh, in how you communicate, as well as that respect of cultural difference when communicating. Uh, it is, I can't think of a more relevant topic for these current times. I also want to thank all of you who are listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have a number of excellent guests like Pete lined up, so please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And for additional resources, you can find show notes on the Mentium website. We look forward to having you join us next time.